So, hello, I'm Alex Rutkeen. I'm a barrister at Thurdman Essex Chambers specialising in mental capacity law. And what I wanted to do with you today was mark the 14th birthday of the Mental Capacity Act, 1st of October 2021 being 14 years since it came into force on the 1st of October 2007. And I thought I'd do that by doing a walkthrough of my top 10 health and welfare cases from the Court of Protection or Court of Appeal or Supreme Court involving the Mental Capacity Act since it came in. So I'm going to do walk through some slides with you. And I should say all of the slides, uh, I'll put the slides up on my, on my website, and all of the links here are hyperlinks out to the case reports we do in our case law database we keep in chambers so as a way to, to get to them readily. So as I say, I want to do the kind of top 10 of cases decided under the Mental Capacity Act since it came into force. Um, there are entirely personal selection. Other people may have different selections. And indeed, I'd be really interested to see if you think there's one I've missed out I really should have included. So the first one is King's College NHS Foundation Trust and C. And as you can see, I put there the test in a nutshell. So this is about capacity. And it seems to me that this case really did summarize in one really helpful place all the learning to that point about how we thought about mental capacity. And the learning really hasn't, I don't think, developed much since. There's something about fluctuating capacity I want to talk about at the end. And there's also a couple of additional points we need to flag up. But the core stuff about the principles relating to capacity, the three principles, the ordering of the test, so not as the code of practice has at the moment, starting with a diagnostic test, then moving on to a functional test, but starting with the question, can the person understand, retain, use and weigh the information and communicate their decision? That's where you start, as, as the King's College case makes clear. It's only if they can't do that, you then move on to ask, well, why that? Why can't that? Why can't they do that? The other thing this case really nails, it seems to me, it's a very difficult decision, a very complex decision about whether or not somebody can refuse or make a decision about life-sustaining treatment. The other thing it really nails is the potential for value clashes when we're thinking about using and weighing. So often that is the area of the most uh, contention. And in this case, Mr. Justice McDonald really clearly identified the need to distinguish between somebody who is incapable of using and weighing relevant information and someone who is capable of using and weighing it, but is applying a different value set. Really important message and a really elegant and important judgment in that King's College one. So the second one I want to talk about is B and a local authority. It's a court of appeal decision and it's a court of appeal decision which talks about silos. Because what the Court of Appeal is identifying is capacity is decision specific. So we do need to make sure we think about each decision in isolation. But we do then need to take a step back and say, have we reached incompatible conclusions about the individual decisions? So if you reach an incompatible decision for, for instance, a piece of information you think the person is unable to understand, use and weigh, say, for one decision, if that information is also relevant for another decision, so one about care, say one about residence, if the person can't understand or use away one piece of information relevant to one decision, it'd be very odd if you came up with the conclusion that they could understand it or use and weigh it for purposes of another decision. Take a step back, don't get lost in silence. The third one I need to be a little bit careful talking about because I'm involved in it, but it's really important, the JB case, for, for two main reasons, actually. So, yes, it's about sex. So it's about an incredibly personal area. That's really important. 
But the reason it's about sex and is therefore important is that one of the things it's doing is it's showing how the MCA doesn't sit in isolation. The MCA sits in a network of laws, a system of laws, which includes the criminal law. And JB is showing the court of protection running right up against the criminal law in some very complicated ways. And how the Supreme Court untangles that knot, we will have to see when they have done their decision. So that's the really the first important aspect. And it's worth saying this is the first time the Supreme Court has ever actually had to grapple head on with capacity. The other thing about the JB decision is I think it makes so clear, and we don't as it were need to be embarrassed about this, we just need to be upfront about the fact that capacity ultimately does have a certain normative element to it. In other words, at the heart of the decision in JB, is a very simple question with massively important consequences. What do we expect people in society, ordinary people in society, to be able to understand, retain, use and weigh in relation to decisions about sex? Do we expect that people should be able to understand, retain, use and weigh the fact the other person needs to consent? So we are feeding into what we think is the relevant information, a certain normative understanding of what people should be able to understand. That's right at the heart of the JD case, because if we expect people to be able to understand, use, way, retain that, it's difficult to see how it could be discriminatory to say, and by the way, we also expect someone with impaired decision-making capacity to be able to understand, retain, use, and weigh that. So this is reinforcing capacity at the end of the day is normative and it's got a social construction to it. As I say, we don't have to be embarrassed, we just have to be transparent about that and be very clear about why we are saying a particular item of information is relevant. So that's capacity. Turning now to best interests, there are two, as it were, Lady Hale specials. The first is Lady Hale's judgment in Aintree and James. The first time the uh, MCA came to the Supreme Court, I was involved in it. I'm not mentioning it to play my own trumpet. I'm just uh, saying this because it was a case which made an enormous impression on me, predominantly because of the way in which Lady Hale took it, took the day of the hearing and then the judgment to be, as, as it were, a masterclass and an exposition in terms of what the Law Commission, where of course she had been and been instrumental in coming up with what ultimately became the Mental Capacity Act, what the Law Commission was seeking to do and what the point of the best interest exercise was. And she was incredibly clear that the point of the best interest exercise is that we start with trying to work out what the person would have done. And that's our guiding light for them reaching a decision as to what's in their best interest. That concept incorporating so much more than just medical interests, say. One really important thing to note about this, the Aintree case has had the most enormous knock-on impact. Understandably, Supreme Court decision defining what best interest means. You can see the entry effect throughout uh, cases thereafter, standing in the shoes of P, as people say. I would just note it has the most interesting, challenging knock-on implications in terms of thinking about someone's wishes and feelings. We need to be clear that we've got sufficient evidence to that person's wishes and feelings. It's super important that we don't try and make them up to try and follow entry. And there are some cases you might think occasionally where we go, are we really sure, are we really comfortable that there has been enough evidence to guide the judges? So the second decision is also a Lady Hale from Lady Hale. 
And this is a decision I sometimes think of as the scales falling from people's eyes in an ACCG. Because this was the case which made very clear after many years of what was almost a decade, actually, of sometimes creative ambiguity about the fact that best interest is a choice between available options. It's making it super clear that you can't get more in the name of best interests than you can if you've got capacity and we're asking for it. Aintree had talked about this in the medical context. You can't get a treatment that the doctor doesn't consider appropriate. And an ACG, ACCG was talking about it, particularly in the service provision context. So in other words, public bodies, whether those be local authorities or NHS bodies, analyzing what your needs are and how to allocate scarce resources to meet those needs. Those decisions are not governed by the mental capacity act. The MCA comes into appointment. There's more than one option on the table. What is the right thing for that person? And so why do I say the scales fell from people's eyes? Well, I say that because it became very clear at that point that actually individuals in impaired decision-making capacity were in a challenging position. They couldn't necessarily say, well, because I've got impaired decision-making capacity or someone on their behalf saying, say, let us say all decisions relate to their best interests, they don't. And we see that the MCA actually is much thinner in some ways than people would like it to be. It's not a tool to magic up options which don't exist. That having been said, the salutary effect of a judge of the court of protection asking a public body to explain why an option isn't on the table can be very helpful. But it's a line that the judges have to be very careful to tread. So I now just want to think a little bit more um, about this, well, carrying on in terms of the top 10 cases. Two cases about the scope of Section 5 as a matter of capacity act. So in other words, when and how, first of all, do we think we might be having to go to court? NHS Trust and why Lady Hales in this case, but the lead judgment was given by Lady Black, following very much in Lady Hales' uh, analysis of, of things. And this is a really important case for identifying the limits of Section 5 of the Medical Capacity Act and how Section 5 is supposed to work, especially in the medical treatment context. Because remember, Section 5 tells us if we reasonably believe a person can't consent to an act of care in relation to care or treatment, and we reasonably believe they're acting in their best interests, we can go ahead and carry out that act. Sometimes we're not negligent, we are protected from liability. And that raises this really important question of, well, how far does that go? How far can you just proceed on that? And when do you need to go to court? Why it results, sort of resolves it, certainly in the medical treatment context, by making very clear, if at the end of the process of thinking, so not just because it looks difficult at the beginning, we go through the process of thinking, of discussing, thinking about capacity, thinking about best interests, not automatically holding a best interest meeting. There's no statutory requirement to hold best interest meetings. Sometimes they can be the worst way of actually getting out the relevant information, sometimes they can be the best way. If at the end of that process, the way forward, there isn't genuine consensus or it's finely balanced, we should be thinking about going to court. And we certainly need to go to court if it relates to life-sustaining treatment. So it sort of answers the question. It doesn't fully answer the question in all the zones where, well, one or two things might be going on. One, it may not be medical treatment. We might be thinking about social care. How far can we go without saying we need to go to court, for instance, removing someone from their, zone, from their own home? There's an article on my website talking about that, trying to think that through. The other thing it doesn't quite answer, because it just didn't come up for decision there, 
is how do we think about the situation where the intervention is a very grave intervention? There's no suggestion that there's any disagreement about it. It just feels extremely, and it's a technical term, hardcore. So take an example, non-therapeutic sterilization. The judges routinely suggest that this is the sort of thing which should be before the court, but never quite identifying why. So NHS trust is incredibly, uh, trust and why is incredibly important about making clear most of the time section five does its job and provides that protection where there is genuine consensus. But it leaves these things, really important things around the margins about, well, when do we need to go to court? The second aspect of Section 5 I just wanted to pick up through, through the prism of a case is Lawson, Mottram and Hopton, which was a case decided by the Vice President of the Court of Protection, the current Vice President, Mr Justice Hayden, where he makes it very clear that the, sec that the collaborative informal decision-making structure of Section 5 is supposed to do the heavy lifting in almost all cases. And in this case, brought by the three parents of three individuals with learning disabilities saying, we should be appointed personal welfare deputies to effectively give us a decision-making authority, which we lost when our child turned 18. Really interesting, important questions about the status, precise status of parents pre-18 from 16 to 17. I've got a shed an hour about that on my, on my website, but they were saying, please can we be made personal welfare deputies? And Mr. Justice Hayden says, no, it's got what well, on the facts of those cases. He was saying in each case, there needs to be an individual analysis as to whether it's in the best interest of the person. But this is against a starting proposition of Parliament passed Section 5 deliberately to try and say nobody should have automatic de facto decision making status. It's a very challenging decision for parents in transition. It's a very important decision in terms of making clear what it was that Parliament was seeking to do when it enacted the Mental Capacity Act. So I do need to do three cases relating to deprivation of liberty. I really wish I didn't have to do so many, but it's important. The reason why I wish I didn't have to do so many is that there are many zones in which the MCA, the tail of deprivation of liberty, feels sometimes like it's wagging the dog of the thinking about capacity and best interests. But this is one of the areas where there have been the most cases relating to the NCA since it came into force. In part, I should say, because Parliament didn't give a statutory definition of deprivation of liberty. So they left it to the courts to decide, especially after dolls have been introduced in April 2009. They left it to the courts to say, how wide does the scope of definition, does the scope of deprivation of liberty go? They didn't say, this is what we think, Parliament thinks it's this, and then allow this to be stress tested. Hence why we've got so many cases. And so Lady Hale in Cheshire West and Chester Council makes so clear that the right to liberty must mean the same for everybody, irrespective of disability. By that very simple, but one have a very simple acid test. Are you free to leave? Are you free just to pack your bags and go? And if you're not, are you under continuous supervision and control? Not one-on-one, -on -one, 24 hours a day, but do people know roughly where you are, roughly what you're up to? And if they don't, are they going to do something about it? Cheshire West is the, the laudable desire of the Supreme Court, the majority of the Supreme Court in Cheshire West, to try and give a non-discriminatory interpretation of deprivation of liberty has had the most extraordinary consequences at one level because we've got this very wide objective definition of deprivation of liberty, 
Supreme Court assumed there was no argument that lack of MCA capacity to consent equated to inability to give consent. I'm not sure that's an assumption which necessarily holds true. I've written a paper about it you can find on my website. I suspect this may get unpicked in due course because it may be that what we're not quite doing is listening appropriately to the person to be able to identify the distinction between what I think in, in reality are two different situations. The one is where the person's will is being overborne. As far as we can tell, they do not wish to be in those in these circumstances subject to these arrangements versus as the person who, as far as we can tell, that's where they wish to be. It's just applying the MCA capacity test. They can't consent to their confinement. That distinction finds its way into the liberty protection safeguards in terms of thinking about what sort of scrutiny the person gets. For myself, I think there's also a coherent argument to say that distinction actually identifies one category of person, coerced, subject, or the, the, the arrangements against their known will, deprived of liberty. The other person, I don't think, is necessarily deprived of liberty. But Cheshire West undoubtedly sets net, the net very wide. Read D, I'll just talk about now for continuity, then I'll come back to Ferreira. Read D sets that net even more widely. The last of Lady Hale's cases about the Supreme Court, uh, in the Supreme Court about the MCA, how wide the net goes. The concept of the acid test applies once you're 16. And once you hit 16, if you don't have capacity to consent, no one can try and say, on your behalf, I agree to this, so as to take your circumstances out of the scope of Article 5. That is a huge statement, really important statement, very broad in its implications. Two years down the line, still not, I'm afraid, as well recognised as it should be. So we've got these very wide definitions, but there is, of course, this carve-out, the carve-out in relation to immediately necessary life-saving physical health treatment for rare. If you're getting that type of care and the arrangements for you are the same as they would be if you had capacity and you were saying, yes, I'd like to be here, please look after me. The courts made it clear, Court of Appeal in Ferreira, and then actually Lady Arden in Reedy, having moved to the Supreme Court, she comes back and says this again. If you're in that zone, the priority is what care is meeting your needs, what care is, is in your best interest, assuming you don't have capacity to consent to it, care and treatment. That's the most interesting thing. We're not going to identify those circumstances as falling within the scope of the definition of deprivation of liberty. So those are my 10 cases. I want to give you two bonus cases because I'm, I'm like that. So they're cases sort of on the edge. The first one is, is a cop case, but I want to give it for two reasons. Um, the first is because it's about fluctuating capacity, which sits in a sort of uncomfortable way in relation to the mental capacity act. And the second is also because it allows me to give a judgment of Sir Mark Headley, he's now retired, formerly uh, Mr. Justice Headley, as one of the best judges who's ever sat in the court of protection, really gets the balancing acts in play. The balancing act between trying to secure the rights of those with impairments versus abandoning people to their rights. PWK is a really interesting case examining what happens if you've got somebody who needs to be able to implement decisions on an ongoing basis about residence, care, contact, things you can't really salami slice out and say, okay, this is a one-off decision, for instance, making a will or uh, undergoing a medical procedure. 
And Mr. Sir Mark Headley says in this case, I'm going to take a longitudinal view. And yes, there will certainly be periods during the time that I'm making this effectively this declaration for when PWK, this individual, might have capacity to make these decisions. But across the piece, I don't think he does. Really important decision to think about how we square the kind of the, the time specific nature of the mental capacity up with actual reality. Also important for reminding us if you're going to do that, take a so-called longitudinal view, you need to be very clear that you're listening very carefully to the person's wishes and feelings when you're thinking about what's in their best interests. And then I couldn't leave this kind of roundup um, without talking about ReDL, because ReDL confirmed in the Court of Appeal that the world hadn't in 2007 been divided into two. We thought at one stage that it had. It had been divided into the world of adults who had capacity to make decisions, also lacked capacity to make decisions. We could think about them through the prism of the Mental Capacity Act and adults who had capacity to make decisions in respect of whom nothing could be done, no matter how vulnerable they appeared to be. I know vulnerability is a different, difficult word, but that's how the courts think about it. And I have to say for myself, I find it difficult not to escape the sense it's got something there. DL confirms the vulnerable but capacitous person is someone in respect of whom the courts simply aren't going to stand by. I can't leave this, though, without making the point, sort of bringing this full circle back to the NCA itself. You may remember or may not remember and may need to know the Law Commission in the 1990s had seen, always seen the mental incapacity bill, as they thought of it at that stage, as part of a unified project. You had that bill and then you had specific provisions relating to public law protection of vulnerable adults. In other words, setting out what people can and can't do in relation to people who are vulnerable. That bit of the project never got taken forward into statute. And we are living with the consequences, DL and a string of cases afterwards, of the fact that judges are really finding their way. I have to say, I think the, fact, the way the judges are finding their way is really challenging because we don't have a set of principles to say we can do this. We can't do that. We're not quite sure how to think about this. You may have your own views, but that's really bringing it full circle back to Lady Hale's underlying project when she'd been at the Law Commission. She had seen two sides of the same coin. Fascinating that the courts of their own motion are reinserting that other side of the coin to the person lacking capacity. Capacitors but vulnerable is somebody the courts are still troubled about and are making up solutions for. And we may well find in due course, it's in a, it's, we simply say we can't keep having the courts trying to make up solutions we need to take a step back and have a proper look at this. So the MCA's 16th, 17th, 18th birthday, we may see something which talks about that. Anyway, thanks very much indeed for watching. Here are my normal resources. As I say, I will put these slides to accompany my talk. And happy birthday, Mental Capacity Act. <laughs>